Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Charlotte Guzzo is the COO and co-founder of Sanogenetics. While studying for her PhD, Charlotte witnessed first-hand the challenges with finding the right patients for medical research. After further exploration, it was apparent the whole system was flawed. Due to issues with patient recruitment and engagement, 80% of clinical trials fail. This means potentially life-saving drugs and treatments will never reach the market. It's a poor situation for everyone. Researchers and scientists are unable to trial new medicines, and patients are reluctant to participate in research. Sano have solved the problem by using technology to connect all of these different parties in a more effective way and remove the headaches that previously existed. They enable organisations to quickly and efficiently recruit and engage the right patients. They take care of the genetic testing and data analysis and ensure patients keep up to date with the latest research and findings. Hey, Charlotte, great to have you on the show. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Craig. No problem. So um, obviously today we're going to talk about sanogenetics, medical research and personalised medicine. But first, just want to talk a little bit about your background. Um, and I just wondered like, what attracts you to a career in medicine and like the motivation behind that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I don't have the most traditional path. Uh, I actually started, um, I studied literature and philosophy in high school for my A-level, so didn't really have a science background to start with had some vague idea that I wanted to be a fiction writer, uh, ended up going to business school uh, and, and realized at that point um, that I, I wanted to do something completely different with my life. I started to get really interested in neuroscience and to read a lot about it whilst I was studying um, in, like in, in, in my business school. Uh, and just so I made the decision at that point that I really wanted to go study neuroscience. And so at the same time as I was completing my degree, I applied to the University of Cambridge for a second undergrad in neuroscience. Uh, and lo and behold, actually got admitted into the uh, Cambridge undergrad for neuroscience. And so from then onwards, that was the plan. Uh, but obviously, I needed to fund that degree. And so I took a job in investment banking uh, in Switzerland for a year and a half or so and deferred entry so that I could pretty much uh, collect uh, a fund and, uh, and, and do that. And that was a great experience in the end, actually, uh, working in investment banking, uh, with the sort of prospect that you are going to do something else is actually giving you a completely different lens on how to appraise the environment around you and what you're learning from it. So that was really interesting. Uh, I did end up doing my degree, uh, in neuroscience, I did it in two years. It was actually really great. The university of Cambridge, uh, when you have an undergrad degrees, uh, can actually offer you to do um, an accelerated second undergrad. Um, it did mean that I had to condense a lot of my first year subject together across my second and third year. So it was pretty intense, but that's what I chose to do. I then moved on to um, my PhD. So during my studies in neuroscience, I started developing an interest for genetics because I was interested on 
how neurodevelopment uh, occurs. And so there were a lot, this is where I was introduced to the concept of genetics because there is a lot, lot of genetics that actually goes into it. And I decided to, um, to go into a PhD in genetics to look into it further uh, and being interested in neurodevelopment, I started my PhD in pediatrics uh, and developed a strong interest in some of the research that was going on at the Sanger Institute whilst I was there and started to focus my PhD on the embryonic origin of childhood cancer. So we were trying to look at where in the development uh, of a fetus um, something happens that will ultimately lead to uh, pediatric cancer in childhood. And it was a really, really interesting time. That's also then that I met my two co-founders, Patrick and Will. Both of them were doing a PhD at the Sanger Institute as well in quite different areas. Will was uh, applying uh, artificial intelligence models to imaging data, and Patrick was more into the field of uh, rare disease. And the three of us met and experienced the same frustration during our PhD about access to data and how the whole process to access good data and to access patients and, and to make a difference was extremely cumbersome, bureaucratic, with everyone doing their own thing, uh, and just generally speaking, not set up in terms of the infrastructure for uh, better insights to be generated from this globally. And so that is sort of when we started to put our brain together on creating Sano. Another thing that came up, obviously, was that patients weren't having very good experience taking part in research or in clinical trial. Often they had to do quite a lot, you know, come to hospitals, do several tests, um, give a lot of their time and, 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 you know, more than that, even for the purpose of helping research and very often they weren't getting updated at all about what we were learning from their data, if anything. And the whole process becomes quite demoralizing after a while. So we felt like there was something that was broken here in terms of the matchmaking between patients and research institutions. Uh, and so in a nutshell, this is sort of how we decided to launch Sano. It's obviously come a really long way since, but this was the premises under which we met and decided to put together a platform. Perfect. And you already started to kind of go into a little bit there because I always like to explore the problem space a little bit before we talk about your specific business and, and how you're helping solve that problem. So I guess pre-Sano, in terms of like medical research, drug discovery, how that whole system worked, which you mentioned was broken and you, and you touched on some of the challenges and frustrations that people had. Like, can you, can you explain a little bit about like the parties involved, like who's funding it, who's running the research, how, you know, how were patients being found previously um, how long does a, yeah. you know, a medical research program take? Yeah, it's a whole wild world. Obviously, when we first got into it, we came at it from the perspective of working in academia, right? And what we were noticing is that every research group had some ideas for research uh, and they had to figure out from scratch where to recruit the right patients, you know, collect the data, uh, sequence, you know, the individual or the tumor, depending on the research that is being done. This whole process actually takes a huge percentage of the, of the PhD itself, but generally speaking for researchers of the research process, when in fact, the really interesting part that is not logistics and patient recruitment is the data analysis, right? And so it felt to us like something wasn't quite working right at that point. And of course there are, you know, large databases where you can access um, genome sequences and so on. But when you have a very specific study design in mind, that's not always suitable. And so there was a lot of inefficiencies here that we started to notice. And that brought us into the big 
uh, world uh, of pharma and biotechs, right? Uh, in which actually this problem turns out to be an even more acute problem than in academia. Maybe to give you an idea, about 80% of clinical trials fail because of inability to recruit the right patients for the trials, so because of recruitment problems, effectively. Uh, we know also for a fact that clinical trials that use genetics um, to actually uh, develop appropriate drug targets are much, much more likely to succeed. And we also have the problem of potentially drugs that are being, uh, you know, sort of la labeled as significant, uh, you know, um, actually statistically insignificant. And so the assumption is the drug is not working, but where you clearly see subsets of individual within the clinical trial in which the drug is working. Uh, and when you look into um, the sort of like basis of that, sometimes you can find some genetic element that explain why a drug is successful in some people and not in other. And so in a way, lots of really missed opportunities here to potentially bring a treatment to the public that can work, although not in all people, in some people. And so there are quite a lot of issues around that. And where we come in, and, and, and I suppose where it's still a big problem today in the industry is in finding patients for pre precision medicine trials, right? So what I've been describing earlier is we're not just looking for a patient that is willing to try a new treatment so that we can figure out whether or not a treatment is, is, is something that we can roll out to the wider public, but we need to find patients that have specific genetic backgrounds, uh, and I think there are a lot of uh, companies out there that are concerned with patient recruitment. They're usually called CROs, but there are other forms of those uh, that have made a living sort of like just trying to identify patients and match them into clinical trial. But there are very, very few uh, companies out there that are able to actually identify suitable patients, genetically sequence them and match them based on complex eligibility criteria, including genetics, into the right trial, where they're the most likely to benefit from the treatment, making the odds of the clinical trial being successful much higher. And that's, I was going to say, that's our niche, but increasingly, it's not a niche anymore. It's becoming, you know, one of the standard way in which we do clinical trials, or at least, you know, some sort of, uh, if, if not based on you know, if not using genetics for eligibility, looking at the genetics in the process of the clinical trial to understand whether it plays a role in the drug response. Oh, that's super interesting. So I guess just to do it in my very simple mind, the way it works is a pharmaceutical company will fund uh, research because they will want to um, create a treatment for a certain condition. And then they'll work with like research partners to perform that research but those research partners need access to the right kinds of patients to actually test and, and do the research on and the issues that exist right now are for the pharmaceuticals sometimes there's issues with finding enough patients so they can't actually do the treatment like go through that medical research process for researchers there's an issue with yeah. lack of data um and for the patients they just don't want to sign up because they don't really see a lot coming back from their side in terms of like helpful information yeah, that's exactly right. And I think actually there are three main issues that stem from this. One is the one you highlighted. Sometimes actually these companies have some data that show that a treatment could work in some people, but because they're unable to find and recruit these people, the trial doesn't go ahead. 
sometimes uh, the issue is more around delay. So they do go ahead with the trial, but with traditional method where they have to partner with hospitals, wait for uh, patients to walk through the door, get them sequenced, liars back with the hospital and so on. Uh, the process lasts several years and sometimes the initial patients that were enrolled, you know, are no longer engaged with the trial by the end of it. And, and it's an issue. Um, you know, the cost as well of developing these drugs as a result, because it takes so long, are much, much higher. And from our perspective, one of the things we want to see happening are efficient treatments coming to the market at, you know, affordable prices as well. And so that, you know, the amount of uh, the amount that is invested in the research upstream is somewhat a factor in that. And then the third thing is it's also very unequal, right? Because with these types of model, if you live in a rural area, you know, in, in some places in the world where you don't have a major teaching hospital doing clinical trials, then effectively these kind of opportunities are completely foreign to you. Uh, a big part of our model is that we do at-home genetic testing and that we have a digital platform that enables both patients, but also in some cases their carers or their doctors, uh, to access trial and to access information and to receive the kit at home. And so we expand much, much wider in terms of the number of patients we can reach, and that includes rare and very rare patients. Uh, yeah, no, I hadn't even thought about that last point around like the accessibility issues as well that exist for people, uh, which which makes complete sense now you've said it. Um, Charlotte, thank you for that, because that was a really good oversight and, and like insights into how things work before and the challenges exist. Um, probably the perfect opportunity to chat about sanogenetics then. So could you explain a bit more about like what, yeah, what you do, how you're helping solve this problem? Yeah, absolutely. So we built a technology platform that enables patients all over the world to access clinical trials uh, opportunity from their own home in many cases. Uh, but there are variations on how we do things. That's sort of like the, the, the premise, you know, the base of, of what we do. Uh, we have partnerships with leading sequencing centers. So we have the ability to bring at-home genetic sequencing to patients. And to me, this is a hugely exciting thing, right? We, we're in a world where uh, whole genome sequencing, you know, <laughs> cost like a million pounds a few years ago. And now we're able to just send these boxes into people's home all over the world for them to spit in a tube and to get their whole genome sequenced within four weeks, you know, of that happening. Uh, and so that's a hugely exciting time. And we have capitalized on this opportunity to be able to bring precision medicine, uh, you know, as a norm in, in, in uh, treatment and in research uh, on a much, much faster timescale, because at the moment, the infrastructure is, is not developed for it. And I think many people will have had this experience in the NHS or in their health, healthcare system where there, there is evidence that there may be a genetic basis for a condition, but they've never been sequenced. They've never been offered sequencing. Uh, and there are lots of implications there because having genetic sequencing can actually answer the question as to whether or not there is a genetic basis to your condition. And that has a lot of implications for your family members, but also potentially in terms of treatments that you can access and drug targets that can be developed specifically for the genetic changes that you're displaying. And so to me, this truly is a big piece in the future of medicine. And having this sort of information and making it accessible to people is, is really going to be what moves us from sort of like general care to actually personalized care, particularly in cases where this may be the difference between a treatment or no treatment. Um, so this is the premise of what we do, but maybe a little bit more concretely, 
there is a whole suite of service that is attached to um, to what we offer through the Sano platform. Yes, we facilitate at-home genetic sequencing for patients, and we also have a large number of sequenced individuals in the platform that we can tap into when we have relevant research projects coming through. But we also support with the whole patient engagement problem throughout the whole cycle of the research studies, and it is a huge problem. So we are able to sequence these patients to actually match them into trial based on eligibility, but we also develop um, you know, resources that are personalized to them, to their genetic background, to their condition, uh, and we keep them engaged throughout the process where they can actually genuinely have a good experience participating in research, learning things that you know they haven't yet learned about their conditions throughout the sort of typical healthcare systems uh, and and generally speaking be much more likely to complete the research project and engage in future research projects so this is a huge appeal of what we're doing another thing that we've started developing um, more recently is to actually um, allow other institutions that have built significant databases to use our technology platform and so we also have a software service model uh, where we build the infrastructure that we have developed on top of these big institutions' databases so that their patients can start accessing their own data, participating in more research opportunities, uh, and deliver some of the participant experience that these uh, big institutions have been looking to bring to their patients for a long time. Uh, so we have these two sides of the model. Typically, oh. where we excel is when a company comes to us and say, you know, I need to find say, you know, 10,000 Parkinson's patients that are located in the US and in the UK and that have this one mutation in their genome. Uh, so you can imagine that the brief without the existing partner database that we have developed and the technology platform that we have built is actually really difficult through traditional channels. But that is something that we really shine at and where we can deliver on a much faster time scales than most uh, other companies that do patient recruitment oh it's, fa it's fascinating um and I, I was going to talk to you about kind of like things from the patient angle next but you just covered off quite a bit in terms of like how you how you've improved on like patient engagement i guess from from a patient recruitment perspective that's still quite a difficult thing is there a lot of like referral work going on in the background where like you work with interest to refer people to sign up to sano or is it a case of partnering with some of these like existing large database it's it's uh it's a mix of both and other and and also other outreach uh you know strategies we do have a referral program but of course very often the patients we're dealing with have somewhat rare disease you know and so like although there is like a sort of network effect where patients are part of patient groups and they sort of recommend the platform to each other, it's a fairly small number in the grand scheme of things. So definitely for us partnering with uh, institutions or patient groups uh, or, you know, uh, generally speaking, other institutions that for one reason or the other have started assembling these databases of patients is, is really important for us. And so we have several really core partnerships with major patient associations uh, where, you know, we. I, I really encourage you to listen up, uh, to our podcast as well uh, online because we often have uh, conversations with, you know, um, sort of leaders of these institutions and explain a little bit how we partner with these patient organizations um, to actually bring these opportunities forward to their patients and also to make sure that uh, we can do this matchmaking effectively. 
Cool. And and I was going to say, um, asked like in terms of Sano, in terms of like size and complexity today, how many partners do you work with? Like, how many patients in terms of like on the database? Um, how many programs do you run? I don't know how you'd quantify it, but could you give a yeah an idea of how big it is? You know, I don't have the exact numbers, but we are. I know that through the partner networks of the different partner that we partner with, as well as the number of patients we have in the database, we have access to millions of patients, you know, across uh, the disease areas that we focus on. So mostly our uh, sort of areas of specialties are immunology and neurology. So we do a lot of studies in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Also, like um, we had several studies on long COVID uh, that were quite interesting. And we do a lot as well in the rare disease field. So we have some studies uh, around uh, NASH and and others that are uh, currently live on the platform. And so, yes, we have access to a very, very large number of patients across multiple uh, countries. In terms of the number of partners, I'm not entirely sure, but there are different types of partners that we're working with. So we have large patient groups, as I say, that we have partnered with, but we also have uh, partnerships. I mentioned earlier with, with uh, large databases, like, for example, Genomics England, um, where we work together uh, on a sort of SAS model and, and, and several others. Got it. And uh, you t- one thing you mentioned there was the fact you were working across multiple countries. And I was hoping you could explain a bit about the complexities that come with that, because I assume that every single country you go into has different regulations, logistically, where the kits are get- getting sent from, where they're getting sent back to, that all has to change as soon as you go into a new country. Could you explain a bit about that journey? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you've nailed this. It is an extremely complex uh, operation to internationalize when it comes to precision medicine and clinical trials that involve genetics because each individual country has very complex and different uh, regulations on whether the, they allow genetic testing, in which context, how it has to be administered, uh, what are the requirements around, you know, anything from the type of collection device we use to the level of accreditation from the lab to the level of support that we provide to patients. Uh, so it's been a huge operation and it was the main focus of our Series A. It was to actually, uh, you know, basically we had uh, arrived at a really good product market fit and we knew that there was a very big market out there that had a need and demand for our product. Uh, but a lot of the complexities as well from these companies is in organizing international trials and liaising between multiple countries where they don't always have the experience of doing genetics in. And it's a big part of our value proposal is also to guide our clients through this process. So we have regulatory and legal specialists that have done a lot of work on what is required in each country. And we have built logistics and sequencing facilities uh, around you know what we know uh, we can do and can't do uh, in different areas of the world, so we have a pretty intimate knowledge at this point. Uh, and and because of or or in spite of of regulations, you know there are some countries in which we are very comfortable to operate, and others in which you know it, it, it's just going to be difficult for many reason. And we usually advise our clients, you know, very upfront. Uh, and that's why I, I love it when we can work with clients early in the process, you know, as they are designing their clinical trials, because we can also advise on feasibility and costs of going into specific countries. 
Yeah, because I'm just thinking actually more in my head. And I, I guess there's not there's other barriers, just like language barriers that could be in having to have everything rewritten, uh, reworded in, in a different language. Could be cultural yeah. differences, which could be challenges. There's lots of things to navigate. So makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. We have like translation services for all the countries that we operate in. We work with local uh, genetic counselors that can speak to patients in their native language. Uh, but you're right that there are also like cultural aspects to take into account. So it's a, it's a very big thing. Um, and then next, just to understand like the revenue model a bit more, like I think you mentioned there's kind of two main ways that you will work with customers, which is either running kind of an end-to-end research program or sometimes the, the customer will actually already have a patient network. So it's more utilizing the infrastructure and the tech and the platform that you have set up. Is it a SaaS model or is it more of like a program like fee that someone will pay? Yeah, we have. So I, I think you you mentioned it, but we have two different revenue stream, one where we work more um, as software service. uh, And so that is the way this is being set up. And so often uh, there is sort of like implementation implementation fees with sort of ongoing uh, software fees and support fees and so on. So that's one model. Uh, The other model, which is really like, again, more where we can uh, use the full suite of service that we've developed at Sano are what we call patient finding programs, right? So this is the example I was giving you earlier of a company coming to us and needing to identify a large number of patients with a fairly rare mutation in specific geographic locations and for us to manage the whole process as well of engaging with these patients, screening them all the way to referring them into the appropriate clinical trial. Uh, And in terms of revenue on that type of model, you know, it's it's multi-layered, right? We are we are ch- charging a patient finding fee, but also uh, there are costs associated with you know sequencing, uh, with customer, with like patient support, and so on, uh, and a couple other things. So it's it's multi-layered, and I would say it's fairly bespoke to each project that we work on. And um, I think I read that. Uh, revenue has been doubling every six months, um, which is pretty impressive. What, what, what do you put that down to? Like, is that just really great execution by the team? Is, is that like the size of the like target addressable market? I mean, these kind of things don't happen. Like, uh, yeah, it's a mix of both. Basically, you do need a good product that addresses a genuine need in the market, right? Otherwise, you can use all of the sales technique that you want. At the end of the day, there needs to be a, a sort of 10x improvement to what people are already using because, as you know, the cost of changing is high. Uh, and, and particularly when it comes to pharma company, the process uh, of changing something is long and and there are a lot of stakeholder involved um so there is there is an element of yes we are delivering an end to end service uh, using a product that that right now you know doesn't have many uh, competitors in terms of like the scope of what we offer uh, and and the sort of level of personalization and and how bespoke we can get in the type of sequencing the rarity of the patients and and also just really uh, offering the entire suite of service there is that but of course there is also the delivery internally because you don't get to uh, to these revenue metrics without a lot of work no matter how great your product is and so we have a pretty tight uh, company objective and waypoint structure uh, where we try to really organize our work streams around what we want to deliver. Revenue is one of these objectives. 
but so is delivery to our clients and actually uh, hitting some pretty ambitious milestones in terms of how quickly we deliver uh, and how you know we maintain our existing clients uh, into the process. But there is also, out of the four objectives, a people objective. And that's something that maybe you don't see as often, you know, in startup companies when you only have four objectives for the year. And that's something I feel very strongly about because it's a belief that both my co-founders and I have always shared that at the end of the day, objectives are delivered by people. And if you don't have people as one of the objectives in your company goals, uh, ultimately, you're going to miss the biggest point, right, which is to recruit the best tal- talent and give them all the tools they need to succeed. Um, so maybe it's a, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but there is definitely a lot going behind this, the scenes in terms of how we keep each other accountable, how we prioritize, which is really, really key in, in a scaling startup. Uh, and how we work together on really delivering on the things that we think are going to lead us to success. 100%. And then I was going to ask if um, you had, uh, well, actually get you to pick out what was your like favorite, proudest kind of program that you've run so far, whether it's like just because it's a is an area that you're particularly interested in or is because it's super successful or whatever that might be. But which one's been your like favorite program that you've run so far? It's going to be really hard to pick because I tend to be like very forward looking. So I would say like my favorite programs right now are the ones that are in the pipeline that are about to come up. I'm usually, I'm usually excited about the different projects that we've been getting the past months and the diversity of them and the impact, most importantly, that they can potentially have on conditions like ALS, for example, you know, for which there is no treatment and where, you know, the quality of life is severely impacted. Um, the idea that we can actually be playing a role in making a difference, you know, in these disease areas is is something that is hugely humbling to me. And, you know, as a founder, you want your business to be a success. You want things to be moving forward. But, you know, ultimately, the three of us were scientists. And so for me today to be thinking I'm able to make some scientific research happen where there may be, you know, like sort of key insights in conditions that currently have no prospects of a treatment is, 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 you know, as good as it gets, I think. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that. What was your initial question? Oh, favorite projects. Yeah. So if I had to pick one from the past few years, there have been a lot that, you know, I've been really excited to work on, but in the height of the pandemic, we uh, launched our long COVID project. And I think that was, uh, you know, really quite special because we were at a time where everybody was really trying to figure out what this all meant uh, and how we were going to move forward with this. And although COVID feels like, you know, something of the past a little bit now and we've, we've just gotten used to live with it, there are still millions of people over the world that are still living with the effects of long COVID that we are quite readily forgetting about. And there are really exciting opportunities, you know, uh, out there in terms of trials and research that are being done to understand the genetics of long COVID and why some people would be susceptible to that and not others. So I would probably pick that one because we we contributed data as part of it to a broader initiative that is doing some fantastic work. And it's been great during that time to sort of put our efforts towards something that felt important. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io. 
where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, it sounds like a pretty good one. But like you said, I mean, all of the programs you're working on, like when you can see the impact that we'll have on um, a segment of people that are really struggling, that's that's really powerful as a, as a motivator. Um, one of the last sections uh, Santa related one chats about was fundraising. Um, so I believe if I've got these numbers right, it's been about 11 and a half million raised to date with the last round being the Series A last year. Um, as a co-founding team, I just wondered how you approach fundraising. Like, does one person take the lead? Do you share responsibility? And generally, like, how was the experience of raising the Series A last year? Yeah, I would say our approach to fundraising has probably evolved over the year. Uh, we we definitely uh, went slightly in terms of who does what, right? We used to sort of all three of us do everything. Like when we raised our seeds with uh, Seed Camp, uh, I think it was me initially who sent the application, who Will, who went in to do the first pitch. Patrick went and did the last pitch. So, you know, it was a little bit sort of like uh, just, just spreading efforts. Uh, when we went for... That was for our pre-seed. When we went for our seed run and series A, it's been led mostly by Patrick, who is the CEO. Uh, but of course, with contributions from all the team in building like a really solid, you know, approach and, and deck on how we are planning to deliver on the various aspects of the company. And all three of us founders are always, you know, very regularly consulting throughout the fundraising process on how we feel about the investors we're talking about, what are the things that matter to us. Uh, and, you know, generally considering proposals like quite carefully between the three of us. I would say one thing that we've always emphasized on when going fundraising was to find investors that were where we weren't going to partner with them just because they were putting money on the table, but because we felt like they genuinely had other things to bring to the table. And also that they had a genuine understanding of what we're doing, which sounds basic, but it's tricky in our area because we are ultimately a software company that is sitting at the interface of pharma and biotech. And you will often find investors that are very specialized in sort of biotech and uh, lab, you know, intensive companies. And you will find software companies that are very foreign to this sort of investment model, right? And we are somewhat of a hybrid because we are a software company and we don't have intensive lab spaces and we don't have, you know, patent over like a specific drug or anything like that. But also we sell into that world. And so that means that the sales cycle and that the way things go are very different from a sort of software technology that serves like a B2C market, you know, and where you can count success in like the number of subscriptions or something like that. So that was a big criteria for us that narrowed down the pool of investor quite significantly uh, because there aren't 10,000 of them, you know, in the UK and even in the world that that truly have uh, the understanding of the nuances of, of this type of business model. Um, so, so we definitely went in it whereas we want people who can add value, who understand the opportunity here of what we're doing, who are going to trust us to deliver on it, but equally who won't be afraid to step in and challenge us on things because that's what you need from investors. Yeah. Oh, lots of good advice in there. Cause I, I've definitely heard of um, like early stage founding teams where like they've got multiple founders in the room and it can be quite um, off putting, not just having one focal point pitching 
um, and being the point of contact for investors. But also, more importantly, the second point you made was like being very targeted with the investors that you want to have like a, a profile in mind of investor rather than uh, taking money from places that you will regret down the line. Um, you already mentioned yeah. like the Series A helps really fund expanding into multiple countries. What what, what next is is there for Sano? Like, what, what are you and the team working on over the next like year or two that you're really excited about? Yeah, it's a great question. I think at the moment we're in the hugely exciting position of having many contracts coming through the doors, potentially really big opportunities, which is the situation you want to be in as a startup, right? But we also uh, experiencing like the sort of typical uh, scaling dilemmas in a sense. We want to be delivering on these opportunities and there is always that tension between, well, how quickly do we grow to seize these opportunities versus you know consolidating the basis and making sure that in the process of doing that, the aspects of our culture and of our, our dynamics internally that have made this a success uh, adapt to the, the, the challenge of growth. Um, so I would say... For us, it's lots of internal discussion on, you know, service versus automation, because we also have a business that somehow uh, does quite a lot of both. We have a software platform where a lot of things that used to be very, very difficult for biotech and pharma companies to do can be done fairly easily through self-help using the platform. So we have a system of blocks where uh, people can build their own questionnaires and marketing materials with the click of a button, uh, which is you know something that we're developing more and more. But then we also have the more bespoke service where when we do patient finding uh, programs, we have the study delivery team supporting the patient throughout the process, um, regularly meeting with the sponsor and with the client to give updates and to troubleshoot. Uh, and this is a fairly labor-intensive area of the business. So at the moment for us, the questions are often around, you know, how do we, how do we shift some of the more service uh, intense parts of the business into more of a self-help model so that we can effectively deliver and see, seize the opportunities that are coming our ways at the moment without growing too fast uh, in a way that is not you know, positive. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, and next, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your um, journey as a founder. And I guess starting off with like, you know, co-founding the business is always a tricky one, making sure you go into business with the right people. And obviously you knew each other from, like you mentioned earlier, your studies. Did you take any further steps yeah. to validate that you were a good fit for one another to start a business together? Or is it more of like a you know, gut feel, this is the right thing? It's a really good question. I, I wouldn't, I mean, you know, we, we didn't sort of officially sit down, check each other's references, like did background checks or anything like that, you know, in, in, in any kind of formal way. It's been more of an evolving relationship. It started with the three of us pitching at an entrepreneurship competition and we were doing our PhD at the time. So we actually had a good two years of sort of mulling that idea over, having meetings together, uh, knowing each other as friends as well in many different circumstances over that time, uh, such that by the time we received our first pre-seed investment and actually decided there is something here, like let's actually you know spend time on this and 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 develop this uh, seriously, uh, we had had a decent amount of time together, you know, both as friends and through our studies and professionally, uh, and so I don't think there was ever a moment where 
we went like, oh, you know, is that the right thing for us to to work together? It sort of happened a little bit more organically. But equally, we weren't in a situation where, you know, we sort of just met as part of an entrepreneurship cohort and decided to found a company at Demo Day, which I think can be challenging. You know, a lot of great stuff have come out of these models, but ultimately you don't really know someone at the end of, you know, six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is. Um, whereas in our case, you know, we, we, we had known each other for at least a couple of years before we just decided to jump into this. Yeah, no, I think I think the organic relationship is is by far the best one that's more likely to succeed. Like you said, I've, I've the accelerator programs so where you get paired with someone and then you have like two days to thrash out <laughs> and decide where you think it's got legs in it is a, is a more tricky one to navigate. Um, next one was about your obviously your COO of Sano, um, and I just wonder if you could explain like what does the COO role entail in a startup, and like from your perspective, what's the most important aspects of the COO role? So it's it's a great question on the COO role because it's a forever evolving role, you know, both in terms of what my role is now versus what it was five years ago, but also generally speaking uh, in the field, right? When I speak to other COOs, it's a very sort of common, common uh, thing to discuss that the function seems to be widely different from one organization to another. And what it actually means can be quite specific to uh, the organization, its needs, and also the the, C, uh, the CEO that the organization has. Uh, but one thing that I would say is there is the word operations, right, in COO. And so in my view, there is a huge element of that is uh, on executions and delivery. So there is a vision, there is a plan. And in my view, the role of the COO is, is to somehow, you know, like deliver on the execution of that plan. Um, for me specifically, I manage the people operations team at Sano, which is something that I care hugely about. And I mentioned that earlier. Uh, so everything that is concerned with org design, recruiting the right talent, uh, giving them all the tools they need to succeed. But I also manage all of the sequencing operations. And so that is all of the complex you know, logistics uh, and scientific operations involved with manufacturing kits, shipping them to people all over the world, you know, bringing them back to various labs that meet different regulatory regulations, making sure that we can get these data sequenced, you know, within a really fast turnaround time, uh, have the right partnerships with genetic counselors to generate clinical reports and get patients supported throughout the process. That is the whole delivery piece that falls under uh, ultimately delivering on this precision medicine side of our product offering, uh, which involves a lot of third parties and moving parts. And of course, I was just going to add to that, that there is like all of the other bits that fall between the cracks in a sense. And that's, you know, working with the finance team on budgets and supporting the CEO for, with investors and so on. No, cool. Thanks for the overview, Charlotte, because I, th- I think the COO role is a really important one. And a lot of the high performing, high growth startups I work with have that position within the company. But I think it's one that's hard to find, like you said, whereas like, for example, like a CTO is, is a much more traditional role where people are very clear on the responsibilities versus the COO role. Um, next, I wanted to talk to you about something a little bit different, which is like taking time off as a founder. Um, I know you've just returned from parental leave earlier this year. One of the other co-founders had parental leave last year. Um, it's something that there shouldn't be any stigma attached to, but I've also heard horror stories from founders where they felt very pressured to not take time off if that's holidays or if that's parental leave, um, if that's pressure from investors themselves. It sounds like the Sano team have been very supportive. So I just wondered, like, one, how the team, investors react and, and have supported you and the rest of the team when you do take time out 
versus like what you see generally in the startup world is do you still feel that there can be a stigma attached to founders taking time out for the business or is it improving now uh i do hear these these horror stories too so i i do think unfortunately there is still a stigma but i think this is where um choosing your founders and choosing your investors is really important and where we've been very lucky i think our take on it has stemmed from first-hand experiences that sometimes when you look at a problem for too long or you get burnt out, this is where you end up making really bad mistakes or wrong decisions. And um, often, you know, what it takes is, you know, just like a refresh and a break and you can come back uh, at a problem with a much better angle. And so all three of us founders are actually pretty good in that way at uh, knowing ourselves and our limits and, and listening to our bodies and minds in a way like when when a break is needed. Uh, and likewise, you know, when it comes to parental leave, uh, we started this company in our sort of late 20s, mid 20s to mid 20s. Uh, and ultimately, we're still going and it's a great sign. But I don't think uh, it's fair or sustainable to ask people to forego on other fundamental life experiences if they want them, like building a family, for example. And that's something that always mattered to me and not something that uh, I was ever prepared to give up. And I'm really glad that we can live in a world and that increasingly people understand this and are supportive of this and are seeing that, you know, actually it goes well and that there is no negative effect to it uh, so that the things can happen. Because what I would find actually less sustainable and more worrying would be funders being pushed out of a successful business, you know, and sort of uh, deciding to stop because they have to sacrifice other major life choices. Um, so in terms of uh, how we supported each other. Uh, me having my first baby was the first precedent uh, at Sano of anyone having a baby. It was pretty early on after we raised funds. And so that prompted us to look at what we wanted to do for parental leave policy. Uh, and as it goes, you know, uh, we just wanted to define something that wouldn't just work for me in that specific situation, but for the rest of the team. And so that's when we introduced the four months uh, parental leave. And we decided very consciously to offer it to both uh, mothers and fathers uh, from the onset so that there wouldn't be, you know, like this bias about uh, women taking extended parental leave. Uh, and so after that, we had the really interesting use case, right? Because I'm married to one of my two co-founder, maybe now is the right time to say, uh, but we found out that we were expecting our second child one week after our other founder was expecting his first child. And I really don't know how we managed to time that or whether this has ever happened in the history of co-founding team. But effectively, we were in a situation where all three of us were somewhat going to have uh, overlapping parent leave and we were going to have to make that work. Uh, and we always have, you know, between the three of us, just found ways where we can respect each other's boundaries whilst also stepping in when the others need it. And so it actually worked out beautifully. And the key to that was to have like a proper plan in place, but not just, it was also to have built high performing teams whom you trust and who trust you so that the entire business continuity does not depend on the founder at any one time. And I think that's maybe the key takeaway here to avoid founder burnout is that you really need to quickly let go of like this sort of controlling need of being involved with everything uh, and everyone and to actually hire brilliant people who are delivering and whom you trust uh, so that the business is in a way more resilient and stronger than just any individual. 
Uh, and we've thanked ourselves over and over again in the past months for having put emphasis on this for various reasons, because it has gotten us through times where, you know, a key person uh, no longer could be working for whatever reason. Uh, and so that, that is really important. And, and, and again, we were really lucky with our investors as well, because they were always only supportive and kind towards this sort of news. And I think it helped obviously to come in very prepared to them with, this is what we're planning to do. You know, we have thought about the ramifications of this, but you know, we only ever got, uh, congratulations and how can I help? So I wish that for everybody else. Definitely. And thank you for sharing that. And, um, yeah, for me, like I always want to try and shine a spotlight on like healthy, positive working practices. And especially for founders who, if they're first time founders, like you just don't understand some of the pressures they're going to be under and how they might view situations in slightly unhealthy ways. So it's, it's super helpful. Um, the last section of the podcast is more about kind of like hiring and like how you've gone about building the business. Um, obviously, you've been through a few phases of hiring now. I think you're up to about 50 people. Um, I'm sure along the way, there's been some interesting challenges and lessons learned. Can you share any like of the the top lessons that you have learned or just top advice you'd have when it comes to hiring for an early stage startup? Yeah. Um, so one one thing that the three of us were always quite aligned on is that we we wanted to grow quickly, but to scale the team responsibly. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. I see a lot of funders make post fundraising. They're suddenly having a huge pot of money in the bank. And they think that's uh, just hiring, you know, like a bunch of people into a bunch of, of positions will just solve the problem, right? You get a front end designer here, you get a salesperson there, this person's just going to sell and this person's going to build the great front end stuff. And that's the end of the story. In fact, it's a lot more complex than that, you know, like ad- helping a team succeed in a growing environment like that, such that you address their needs, their career ambitions, you align them with the company goal, you make sure everybody has the information they need at all time, that they know what they're doing, that they know where the company is going, is a lot of overhead. And the more people you get at once, and the more these relationships break down. And so you have to be really, really careful. And you also have to be really careful about hiring the right people. And we have been in a situation many times where we really needed a position to be filled and we were stretched but we didn't have the right candidates at the time coming through the interview process. And we've made the conscious choice of acknowledging this increased pressure and the fact that we, you know, had to somehow prioritize and maybe let things go rather than hire someone we didn't have hundred percent conviction on. Uh, And I think that might be quite different than from what some other people do it. I don't know. This is what always felt right for us. Um, and, and our team today is really the thing that I'm one of the most proud of because we are working with a, a bunch of genuinely impressive, ambitious, intelligent individuals uh, who also have a really great moral compass and challenge us, but also, you know, deliver in ways that we didn't anticipate, you know, as funders. And that's what happens when you hire great people is that they don't just tick the boxes on the job description. They just actually genuinely add value to your company. Um, and I would say maybe, um, caveat that by saying it's not just a recruitment problem, it's a culture problem. And that's something that we very, very consciously spent a lot of time on. Even when we were a company of six, we actually spent time sitting with our first employers, you know, understanding what was driving them, what mattered to them. And we do this exercise over and over again, as we scale, uh, and invest a significant amount of time. 
uh, in people processes. Uh, and, and so I would say this recruitment process combined together with a culture that you can be proud of is, is pretty fundamental. Um, you talked about recruitment challenge. I think like, like everybody else, we've, we've, we've ridden the wave of, of this crazy employment market the past two years, you know, going from suddenly a ton of incredible applicants when the lockdown starting to hit and people were being made redundant and were embracing remote working where you just had to post a job live and you had like 10 incredible candidates like knocking at your door uh, to this sudden like ma- massive inflation in salary where we had to reconcile the fact that we were getting good people to interview, but they wanted to be paid, you know, like a multiple over our best existing engineers. And so we couldn't really do that without adjusting their salaries. And this had a whole lot of implications for runway to now what seems to be like a bit more of a stable market where actually uh, it's tilted back to we have good solid candidates and they're not getting 25 offers so we can have like sort of um, good conversations and it seems to have gone a little bit less crazy. But I think what I'm describing here is is not us. It's something that everybody has experienced. And so the, the real difference probably is how you react to that. You know, do you, do you stick to your recruitment principles and to what matters to you as a company? Or does your recruitment principle just swings left and right based on what the market dictates? And that's, that's an important question to ask yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's a very good summary of the market over the last two years. And um, it sounds like you and Sana have approached it in a very mature, disciplined way, which you don't see in everyday startups all the time. It can be kind of a bit sporadic, shooting from the hip strategies, or not even a strategy, if you like. Um, and I was going to ask you next, uh, you kind of t- talked a little bit about the culture you're building. And am I right in thinking that Sano is remote first? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Which, which brings a, another layer of difficulty as well when you're building a culture, because I think it has to be even more intentional and deliberate. And I just wondered if you could share I know, a few of the things that you've put into place to ensure that even though you're remote first, that there's a high level of collaboration, it's still high performing, um, that people feel you know it's an inclusive culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually a really important thing to highlight because... Uh, you know, a lot of companies became overnight remote companies in the pandemic. And I think a lot has been said about this. So I'm not going to rehash, you know, like topics that have been discussed over and over again. But being remote needs to be very intentional because there are opportunities, but also challenges that are unique to being a remote company that needs to be acknowledged and proactively anticipated uh, if, if this is to be successful. And I think there is nothing worse than some form of like hybrid that hasn't been thought through where half of a team is in an office, another not, there is no real sort of like guidelines around how this, this works out Uh, or, you know, fully remote companies where uh, it's like, let's continue business as usual as it was when we were in office and, and, and it will just work fine. Um, So, you know, it's been lots of iteration for us, but we had the benefit of being a really, really small team when the pandemic uh, moved us to remote. And so we have had the the luck in a way of growing our company quite significantly, being remote from the start. And so what that means is obviously having good tools in place for work to be done, to have trust and strong sets of objectives, because you're not going to be micromanaging people, right? This is one question I often get 
uh, from you know people in my surrounding, particularly people who really haven't had experience of remote working in their professional lives. How do you how do you make sure that your employees are actually working? Well, you know we're not like actually having worked in an investment bank, I can tell you that much. You still don't know that they're working even when they're sitting at their laptop and at their desk. So really, like the only tangible way to know is by having very, very clear expectations and an ongoing conversation with them about what great looks like for their role. You know, what does success looks like for their role? And if they're delivering on that, then this is working great. And if they're not, there needs to be conversations about how we can make that happen. But ultimately, the outcome is how you know something is working out. And as far as I'm concerned, if someone is delivering amazingly on their outcome and they prefer to work from six to three rather than from nine to five, or they just want to arrange their hours separately, or they've gone to the dentist during their lunchtime, I really don't mind, you know? Uh, and I think that is like a, a really important thing that you need to be comfortable with, with being remote as a leader. It's hard to be in a remote setting and to be a micromanager. So you have to be comfortable with that leadership style. But to your point about bonds and connections, because that is important and that is a really strong factor in actually keeping people engaged with their job. Uh, What we've decided to do at Sano is to have a quarterly two to three days offsite. So every three months uh, we fly the company in or we just like uh, basically people take trains wherever they, they are. They come to one big offsite retreat Uh, where for two days we have a mix of like, uh, you know, exciting working sessions, blue cat sky sessions, bonding with each other, social events, dining together, hanging out together. Uh, And this is really a highlight uh, of the experience working at Sano. And we know from feedback that this is something that people in our team, you know, always come back from feeling like really refreshed and connected and motivated about what we're doing. And I would say it's not just a case of just showing up and like, let's just all hang out in person. It needs to be planned because it's a unique opportunity once every three months for everybody to be reminded why we do what we're doing, uh, who are the people we are working with, you know, and for them to actually feel what we truly believe that, that they are actually incredible people, that they're part of this team for a reason and, and to see the other incredible people that they're working with and feel inspired by that. So there is that. And of course, there is a lot of little in between that we do in terms of remote social donuts, you know, coffees, buddy system, when people join proper and boarding and so on. Uh, the list is endless, but I, w- I would just conclude by saying there needs to be a very, very conscious uh, and constantly evolving decision on how you manage to keep up these feelings of togetherness and, and sort of shared motivation when you're not in the same room every day. Absolutely. Oh, ton, tons of good advice in there. Like, I, I think, yeah, number one is um, if you have a culture that's focused on inputs, then, then you're going to be in trouble very quickly. Whereas, uh, you know, outcome focused is, is much more healthy. And secondly, yeah, it seems to be a much more popular way, the um, remote first, but then you have these quarterly get togethers for a couple of days. But, like, you know, there's a huge amount of cost that goes into those events alone, let alone all the other bits. So like you said, you have to be very intentional and planned about make sure people feel connected, they have enough space, there's balance between work and play. Um, it's a great opportunity to pull them back to like the mission, the impact of the business. So super valuable couple of days with the team. Um, my very last question, Shah, is just going to be around um, hiring your first talent person. So I think it's a question I hear a lot from founders is like, when's the right time? When should I make, you know, bring talent in-house? Um, I think you hired your talent manager, talent lead kind of last, last summer. Um, what, what was the trigger point for that? And, and more importantly, like what impact have you seen from bringing a talent person in? No, so actually we hired, we have two persons in the talent team right now. We have a people ops manager and a talent acquisition manager. Our, 
our people ops manager has been with us for quite a while, actually. Uh, and again, that's probably a testament of the fact that we very quickly identified that building a culture that we're proud of and attracting top talent was a priority for us. And so I still am very involved in the direction of people ops and manage that team. Uh, so we haven't quite made the leap yet of hiring a head of talent type role or VP of talent type role, though I'm sure this, you know, like this, the, the need for such person will be coming. Um, but we did hire our people ops manager fairly early on in the process. What was um, the trigger? I, I think it was a, a very strong conviction and desire that like things needed to be done to a really high standard from a people ops perspective. And, and, you know, that are things like the, the things I'm talking about is onboarding experience, uh, quarterly social offsite planning, right? Everything else, what we just discussed about before, uh, just generally speaking, keeping an eye on engagement on metrics, trying to understand what we're doing well, what not, what we're not doing well, um, performance reviews and career maps. And how do we, build a system where we can be consistent in providing our team like the, the the opportunities that they are after. And I just didn't have the time to do all of those things to the extent I wanted to do them whilst also delivering on the other aspects of the company. Uh, so this came up pretty quickly for us. And I do think, unfortunately, that people make the mistake of waiting too long to bring in someone. And then they bring in someone who is also quite junior and the company has grown to a certain level and they actually haven't done the work up until now to ask themselves the question of what experience they want people joining their team to have. And it becomes quite a challenge. So uh, I, it's something I will never look back on and never regret to have hired like a really good people ops manager uh, early on in the process. We, we then hired a talent acquisition manager. I think the trigger here was simply, you know, like we were managing the recruitment process ourselves as founder for a really long time, which in retrospect seems a little mad. But at the time we were, you know, just recruiting slowly. So we could just like prioritize that when and, and when it was needed. And that was fine. Uh, the trigger really was at the point where we started to get through contracts of bigger value and more recurrent work. And we, we knew that we would be needing to hire like, you know, seven plus people on a monthly basis. And, and we, that was an obvious choice. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, Charlotte, look, we've covered a huge amount of ground here and I've learned absolutely tons. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, for anyone that wants to learn a bit more about Sano, obviously there's the podcast that people should check out, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, but in terms of like socials, where is Sano best to follow? Um, probably, tw I would say LinkedIn. I mean, <laughs> it sounds a bit boring. We do have a Twitter as well and an Instagram, but LinkedIn is really the place where we post the most informations on like webinars, conferences, podcast content, uh, all of the great stuff that we're experiencing. And this is in part to, due to the nature of the industry that we're in, where, you know, there is a lot of conversations happening on there around these, these exciting areas of development. But do go on the website, do go on the podcast. I feel like the podcast for someone who is not in the industry is like the best place to start because there are some genuinely incredible stories in there from patients advocates and the like and it's uh it's an enjoyable read sorry for uh, promoting a podcast on a podcast but it is actually a really fun uh, a really fun thing to do 
no 100 i mean it's all love here so i'm more than happy for you to promote the podcast um and like i said I'll, I'll put it in the show notes um so everyone can can click on the link and, and check it out um amazing well sure i think that's it so thank you again for coming on the show it's been a pleasure chatting with you and uh, wish you and the team all the best great thanks so much for having me craig it's been really fun that's it for today's episode thanks for listening and if you haven't done so already please subscribe and leave a review better yet tell a friend about the show the more people we can get involved the more hope we have for making the world a better place this episode was brought to you by craig turner produced by jabril al-sahami and sponsored by jobs for good until next time